podcast one production. G'day, I'm Tim Harcourt and welcome to the Airport Economist. In this special mini-series, we're sticking to home soil to discover some of the greatest export success stories taking place right here in Australia. Exporting can expose your business to a wealth of opportunities, but as we'll soon find out, there are some tricks and tips to getting it right. So in each of these six episodes, I'll speak to small businesses right across the country to find out how they've achieved their success overseas and what you can do to ensure your own. What's in a name, as Shakespeare said? Well, quite a lot, actually. You might remember that the European Union, thanks to the French, stopped Australian winemakers using the word champagne because they claimed it was a region in France, so we had to start using sparkling wine. The same thing happened with Burgundy. That's another place in France. And even Parma ham, because Parma is in Italy. But, of course, this can cut both ways. My next guest, Belinda Everingham, had an unusual experience when she set up her business, Bondi Wash, on the golden shores of Bondi Beach in Sydney. Her business, Bondi Wash, makes hygiene products for the home and family using natural Australian products like eucalyptus and botanicals, very uniquely Australian. But soon after Belinda set up Bondi Wash, she found herself in an intellectual property dispute with a US-based multinational who'd actually registered the name Bondi Beach. But in a David and Goliath struggle and with some politicians on board, this Aussie small business owner fought and won. And Bondi Wash is now with us today and it's thriving. After all, what could be more iconic than Bondi Beach? Just like Uluru and Akubra that also appear in this series. Bondi really resonates with Australia. And also it's what makes it so attractive to overseas customers. They really think of Bondi Beach as true blue Australian. And that perfectly describes Bondi Wash and its CEO and founder, Belinda Everingham. Belinda, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, tell us all about Bondi Wash. What do you do? Well, at Bondi Wash, we make natural products featuring Australian botanicals uh, for the home, the body, the baby and the dog. So it's basically cleaning and hygiene. Uh, It's a little bit more than that because we have washing products, but we have products that are related to washing. So we have lotions and a bit of skincare and deodorant. All the products, um, the commonality is that they feature Australian botanicals. And Australian botanicals have a number of different properties, one of which is they're very antibacterial. So the washing products make a lot of sense because they do kill germs, but they do it naturally. But then there's other properties, so uh, ingredients like um, kakadu plum, we're just about to use in a shampoo bar. There's lily pilly we use in hand lotion. There's uh, Illawarra flame tree we've got in our body lotion. Uh, wattle seed oil. There's there's a lot of beautiful ingredients that are not antibacterial, so not so suitable to washing, but very, very beautiful in other contexts around the home and the body and the baby. And the baby too. <laughs> and the dog. And the dog, of course. Yeah. Now... How did this all start? This was an idea you had on holiday, wasn't it? Uh, It was brewing for a while um, and I'm quite sensitive to chemicals. Uh, I was reacting to chemicals from household products and body products. But I was um, on holiday in Queensland, Port Douglas, 
And, um, as you do? As, well, yes, with the, with the family, with the mm-hmm. kids, great mm-hmm. location for the children. And uh, reading the book Perfume by Patrick Suskind, which is all about the power of fragrance. And I love fragrance and I've been to Paris and grass. Um, so it got me thinking, I wonder if we could create products from Australian botanicals. While we are up there, we visited a fruit farm and a rainforest and there were all these plants I'd never heard of, like kakadu plum and kwandong. And it really got me thinking, could we create what the French have done uh, in the south of France where they've got plantations of lavender and rose and wattle. They, they use our wattle uh, in French products. The French use our wattle? The French have. Oh, they've seen the light. Well, good on yes, them. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, they're, they're, they've, they've done a great job of adopting the best sort of ingredients and putting them into their beauty products. And it got me thinking, could we do the same in Australia? And it happened, the business sort of started very quickly from that point. Um, coming back to Sydney, I did a little bit of research into what ingredients were available and found some more unusual scents than the usual eucalyptus and tea tree that um, I was then able to incorporate into fragrances and products. And the business launched about 15 months later. So this was at around 2012, 2013? The holiday was 2012 and the business launched November 2013. Oh, Mazel Tov. Yeah. Your anniversary. Um, So you are a born global exporter. You started exporting from the beginning? Not quite the beginning. It was always planned. So I did things like worked with a manufacturer that I knew could scale up quite quickly if needed. But um, the exporting did happen much faster than I thought. Um, Our first export destination, if you can call it that, was New Zealand. That is, of course it is, yeah. <laughs> beyond our shores. Yeah, yeah so sure. that was January 2014, so just mm-hmm. a few months after we'd launched. Then we, uh, I was in Hong Kong on holiday and just came across this tiny little store and I thought this would be great to have our products. Gave them my card, sent them some samples and six months later we launched in Hong Kong. So, and unbeknownst to me, this wasn't a small store, so the... Um, the guy behind the store, and there were multiple stores in Hong Kong and Taiwan, had helped ESOP launch into Asia 20 years prior. So a man with a lot of experience exporting into Asia. So that was the beginning of um, Hong Kong and Taiwan and then subsequently China as well. So would you call yourself an accidental exporter or was it planned? I think it was It was planned, but how it happened was very serendipitous and lucky. Serendipity. And you made your own luck, of course. Well, I was in the right place at the right time. And you followed through. Yes, and I followed through. That's right, yeah. So you export now to what? Hong Kong, Taiwan? Hong Kong, Taiwan, China, uh, Japan, again, another serendipitous story, Korea and Europe as well. Why is Japan serendipitous? How did Uh, that happen? A guy who, who was here in Australia, who brought his family to Australia after Fukushima, uh, wanting sure. to bring his children away from Japan, decided he would look for brands that he could take back to Japan and found our products on the shelves of one of our stockists, loved mm. them, and uh, we started talking to him and that's how Japan happened. Oh, where's the history? Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And what do you think's made your export plan successful, yeah, apart from you've got a lot of follow-through? Um, Is it your product? I think it's the product. Before I started the business, I spent most time on the product I didn't think a lot about marketing. Um, I really focused on the sense and the effectiveness of the product. So that kind of obsession with getting the product right from the beginning uh, was the focus. So I think it is the core product. But I also think there was probably, in terms of what the market had to offer, innovation in a number of areas. So it was the fragrance. It was being really natural 
it was the fact that they are effective. So the products that have antibacterial properties have been lab tested and they do kill 99.99% of germs. And I think it's also fair to say that we're Australian. I think that's certainly helped. Not a bad thing? Yeah. <laughs> so it's got a good sort of brand, Australia, overseas, clean and Australia green and natural. Australia has a good brand in every market that we export to, definitely, yes. And what is like some of the sorts of challenges? I mean, you export to somewhere like Japan that's very much into presentation. Yes. Uh, compared to Europe, which some people find quite regulated. I mean, how is, yes, what, what I think challenges have been you, in there? You're right about both those aspects. Um, so the Japanese um, market is very different from all the other markets, I would say. The attention to detail and the feedback we get from our da- Japanese distributor is quite different from all the other uh, markets in terms of little things that might be wrong with our packaging. So we've had to work very hard on meeting the standards of the Japanese customer. Um, which is a good thing for our brand. I think it really pushes us to get a really high quality product, having our products available for sale uh, in Japan versus Europe, where that took a long time for us to be ready to uh, launch in Europe legally because of the regulations. It's complicated and it's expensive. And it certainly was expensive for us before we launched. I think we probably spent more than 25,000 US dollars just getting a small range of products approved for sale across Europe. Is this regulations to do with health? Or cosmetic. Cosmetics, mostly yeah, cosmetic, yeah. but even in the home range, there's some yeah. regulations. So um, that took a long time and was a lot of administration and paperwork. But, what, you know, having said that now, we know how to do it and we're doing it in-house and we've got it streamlined. So it was painful and expensive, but now... You had to use external help to start, We did use external help to start mm. um, because it's a minefield. And we still use a little bit of external help because you have to, to get um, verification that your products meet the standards. But we do it, most of it in-house now, so it's fantastic. Yeah. So you've got over that hurdle and way We you have got over that. It's still a hurdle. There's still mm. a lot of paperwork that has to be collected and submitted um, to sell any product, any cosmetic product in Europe. And I'm not complaining about it because I think it's a very good way for the consumer to be protected. You know, they will not sell a product if it contains contaminants and irritants um, and toxic ingredients. So it's not protectionism, it's just health regulations. Uh, I think it probably is protectionism because um, looking at the regulations, things that the big brands get away with, which, are, you know, they're, they're ingredients that we wouldn't use. Um, the big European brands. The big European brands, um, without wanting to name names, but I think that they might be quite intimately involved in creating the regulations. Mm. Um, I'm guessing I have no mm. no. Do you think, I mean, you talk about Europe as a whole, I mean, it's not a country. I mean, is that how you think exporters see it because it's a single market? Um, like you don't in, export to Belgium or France, you No, that's a good question. And in terms of, um, it depends on what you're talking about, in terms of trademarking. There's a streamlined process and we got our European trademark, you know, as a whole. You can use for the whole lot. Yes, except the UK. I think the UK is separate. And in terms of the regulations, that's a centralised body. So once it's a proof of sale in Europe, it's a proof of sale in Europe. But um, in terms of marketing and branding and selling a product, every country is different. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that has been another challenge, I guess, in terms of Europe, is working out how to launch in each market. And even in... Asia, I mean, as you say, a, a Japan strategy because they're very much into presentation and, mm. and so on. That would be very different than the rest of East Asia, for instance. 
It is, and I think that's why in all the Asian countries we have distributors because they there's no way I think we could have done this on our own in any of these markets. We don't understand how things are marketed. We don't understand how things are presented, the distribution channels, the language. So our Japanese distributor has done a lot of the hard work in terms of getting the products approved, getting the labels correct because they have to be translated into Japanese. So working with the local distributor and each market has been quite important. How do you find a distributor? Well, the um, as I mentioned to you, the, the store that I found in Hong Kong, yeah. they happen to be not just a store, but they distribute a lot of niche brands into Asia, premium niche brands um, like Diptyque and Byredo and Lalabo. So, you know, that was luck. Um, it's mostly serendipity. Um, Korea was another serendipitous story with um, there was a, a uh, nasty incident in Korea where 100 people died because of a mainstream brand cleaning product. Yeah. And so we, uh, maybe 12 months after that happened, got a lot of inquiries about our products because I think all the department stores and retailers were looking for more natural products in that, in that space. So we were contacted by quite a number of Korean re- uh, distributors and that's how we found ours. And, and you market yourself as Australian. We do, yes. And that's good, good in Asia and, and Europe. And, it is, and, yes. But you let them take care of the marketing in-house, in-market in a sense. We do. That's exactly right. We do. We have our own brand manager in Europe, so we have more control over that. But in Asia, we definitely need the local experience, I think, to know which channels work, how to work with influencers, if you do work with influencers, that kind of thing. Do you think you sort of jumped the rising tide or do you think you created this demand yourself through... Serendipity. I think I was probably early in the rising tide. Um, my own experience with, you know, headaches from a bench spray, um, irritation from shampoos. I think the people, the companies were just not offering very good alternatives back when I, you know, started thinking about this business. So it was based on my own needs, I guess, that the business was created. But since then, um, they've been the market is, has grown enormously. I think globally, particularly here in Australia, I think is it's fantastic to see people are choosing many. They're much more educated about ingredients. They're preferring natural products. You see them now on the supermarket shelves. We have had, um, to varying degrees, companies you know imitate bits and pieces of what we're doing. But I think it's, you know, for the market, for the world, it's a good thing that consumers are more educated and they're, cho- they're making choices that are not going to be detrimental to their health and to the environment. And how do you think you keep ahead of imitators? Do you just keep ahead of the pack oh, and keep innovating? That's a great question. Yes, that's the only way you can do it. You're not very protected as a business, particularly a consumer goods business, from an IP perspective. You're much more protected in music or the arts, but not in business. Um, so... Brands can and have taken, you know, words from our packaging, the layout and words from our website. It's all legal. So as much as it's been painful to see your hard work replicated in other uh, situations, I've now realised the only thing to do is to just keep innovating and to just look ahead and look forward and think about what, what's next. You even had a bit of an intellectual property challenge with the name Bondi Wash. Tell we us did. about that. We did, yes. Um, and I did do research before we 
you know, launched with the brand and registered the brand, um, and but didn't uh, foresee the troubles that we would have in a number of markets, the US, Canada and Korea. We had our trademark blocked because Abercrombie & Fitch, a, a big US fashion house, had previously registered Bondi Beach and in all those markets, the trademark officers don't didn't know Bondi was a famous place oh, how in Australia. Yeah, could they well, not? My it's, gosh, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, Bondi is really not that famous in a lot of these markets. So anyway, we had to negotiate with Abercrombie and Fitch directly to try and get you know our trademark through in America. And um, just as we were signing on the dotted line with Abercrombie and Fitch, uh, a journalist got wind of the story. Ah. And uh, and I was very nervous that there would be some form of retribution from this big company. But there was a lot of public support for the David versus Goliath story once it hit the ABC News. You like the little Aussie battler taking on well, it the was, big corporate. It, was, yeah. it really was. Uh, and I couldn't speak to the media at the time because I really felt that it was such a precarious situation we were in and we needed to get our trademark through. But I think Abercrombie and Fitch realised that it was a publicity nightmare for them having sort of taken ownership of this, it's like killing Bambi, isn't it? This really? beach in Australia yeah, that yeah. they had nothing to do with. Yes, yeah, that's right. What would you tell first-time exporters to do if they face something similar? Yeah, we've had Ugg boots and lots of other things, haven't we? Yeah, I think firstly I would say to them, think very carefully about your brand name and it's getting harder and harder to register a brand name because so many people are registering different names. That would be the first thing. And do your research in the markets that you want to sell into to make sure that, that you're not going to encounter problems if trademark is in, marking is important to you. And I think the only other thing would be you do need legal help, unfortunately. I could not have done this on my own. Um, and I tried to by contacting Abercrombie & Fitch directly, but unfortunately you need lawyers and it's cost us tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees. Um, to get our trademark in these countries. Hmm, and I think it. we're still going in Canada, to be honest. We're still going, so... Okay, so it's not the end of the line yet. It hasn't finished, yeah, yeah. Well, Canadians yeah. are very polite, usually, aren't they? They'll probably drop oh, back they're, down. Their tra- 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 trademarking office isn't. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> it's really one, been one of the toughest, actually, yeah. So with, you know, economic forces like exchange rates, does that affect you, you know, because, you know, you're selling around the world and, you know, the Australian it, dollar jumps up and down? It's a good question and up until recently I would have said no, but I've noticed it in the last few weeks. Mm. Um, our products are premium, mm. so um, small exchange rate fluctuations do not make too much of a difference and we source most of what we buy from Australia. But I am noticing packaging, which is priced in US dollars. We buy our packaging from Taiwan. I'm noticing now it's almost getting to a tipping point where we could go back and revisit some of our, you know, potential Australian suppliers for things like brochures and information cards, which we had been sourcing overseas just from a price perspective. I think now uh, we might look to Australia. We are looking to Australia, actually. There are potentially some advantages, obviously, of having a lower exchange rate when the US dollar is really the currency that our products are priced in, even in places like China, the distributor uses the US dollar price as the, as the price at which they set our retail pricing. That's numeria for most exporters, US dollars, it is. I suppose. Yeah, not in Europe, but in Asia it is. Yes, US dollar seems to be the currency that everyone talks about. So I guess, you know, when the Aussie dollar's cheaper, that can be good for exporters, but with they import a lot of components, as you say, that can be Hard. Yes, it is. That's exactly right. I mean, manufacturing in Australia has benefits because we're more cushioned from exchange rate fluctuations um, because we a lot of our 
goods and services are sourced here, but it is it's definitely um, you know it's definitely a, a benefit in terms of you know the margin I suppose that the distributor gets in um, in Asia is going to be higher uh, because our pricing is in Australian dollars. And apart from the occasional lobbying on IP, do you get government assistance from anywhere? Government grant schemes or anything? We do. We uh, for the last. Three or four years, we've submitted applications for the export market development grants. The EMDG scheme. EMDG scheme, which is a great scheme and has helped us uh, every year. What the scheme does is pay 50% of your export marketing costs, including trademarking costs. And particularly because our trademarking costs have been significant, we've got back a lot of money. You've got to spend it and get the money we back, We have right? to spend it, yes. yes, yes. And also when I go overseas, those airfares uh, and those trade visits, you know, you get back half of them, so it makes it more affordable, particularly in Europe at the moment where we are spending money, whether we have a, a branch office and we have a brand manager, all those expenses are part of the AMDG scheme and that makes it significantly more affordable to, to have them in Europe. It's better to spend the money first and get it back because people used to go to Lords and claim they're on a... Export trip, weren't they? And they come Is back and say, right? oh, I, didn't, I didn't sell anything. Oh, <laughs> well, right? thanks for the effort. Yeah, you, you do to, have to prove you've got, you got that to prove you're, that you're, you're actually you're, doing you're it. You're doing yeah, business no, over there. That's yeah. probably good. That's probably yeah. good. That's probably yeah. good. And what about Europe? I mean, the European Union's used you as a bit of a pin up business. I believe they have, yes. So is this yeah. about the free trade agreement? Is this about just finding Aussie businesses well, that are doing well I in think, Europe? Um, you know, I think it is a success story, Europe, for us, uh, thankfully. And I have to say we probably wouldn't have continued it if it weren't for the fact that that EMDG scheme was giving us um, 50% of our expenses back. The Export Market Development Grant Scheme has been part of the reason why we stuck with Europe for longer than we probably would have. Um, Compared because, to other markets. Yes, because we were managing it ourselves and um, and it was, it's, it was hard. Um, it was hard to get traction in, in different markets. And all of a sudden... It's happened for us uh, in Europe in the last six months. And the free trade agreement will be wonderful if, if they can get that through uh, in hopefully reducing the tariff barriers, which are really significant. And in addition to the just general taxes you have in Europe, there are trade taxes as well. So, and transport's quite expensive into Europe. And as I mentioned before, the complexity of cos- cosmetic regulation is a big thing in Europe. So if you were... I guess, giving advice to people exporting for the first time, what sort of tips would you give them? I would say be prepared. So there's a lot of groundwork that you need to do. You need to be ready to scale up. Um, The other big piece of advice is work with the right partner. There's a number of markets where we've been approached by potential distributors and haven't taken them on because they haven't felt right. So it's a really important partnership. Um, You need a lot of trust with your distributor and you need to know that they're the right ones. So other pieces of advice would be um, it's a lot of hard work and it just gets more and more actually. You know, getting ready is, is hard work but also satisfying the market and continuing to innovate and get products ready for each market. It's, it's, all, it's all hard work. So it's be prepared, choose the right partners and be persistent. It's the three Ps, isn't it? That is a good way of putting it to Belinda's him. Belinda's three Ps. <laughs> yes, Fantastic. I love it. Yes. Yeah. Thanks very much for your time, Belinda. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Tim. Thank well, that's it for this edition of The Airport Economist. I hope you enjoyed listening and picked up a few useful tips along the way. The Airport Economist podcast series is produced by Liv Proud 
Audio production by Darcy Thompson and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. The Airport Economist is recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au, download the app, look us up on iTunes. And don't forget, there is also the Airport Economist TV series and book of the same name. You can find out more at our website, theairporteconomist.com, before you take off. Well, thanks for joining me. I look forward to our next business adventure together somewhere in the big wide world. I'm Tim Harcourt, and I'm the Airport Economist.